True story, husband and wife, 23rd wedding anniversary, Sunday morning, both are dressed, ready to go out the door for church. And she said to him, let's go now. And he said, I need five more minutes to finish these emails from, from work. I'm sorry, I got, I'll give me five minutes. She said, nope, uh, I'm, I don't want to miss the singing. She takes off, she goes to church, and she's there. He gets there five minutes later, and he kind of remembers she had on a black something and maybe like a red sweater. And so they're seated, they're singing, the church was pretty full, and he slides in beside her and puts his arm around her. It's their anniversary. And he says, hello, baby, I got your number. The woman looks at him and she said, I don't know what number you got, but it's the wrong number. And he kind of leans forward, and he sees his wife about 20 feet over, and she's just shaking her head, knowing that he wasn't paying attention to what she was wearing as he walked out the door. Has anybody in the room ever done that, something like that? Okay. I have a friend of mine. We had dinner with him on Thursday night, and he had a day trip early in the morning, came back at 6 o'clock that night, and he always parks in long-term parking at the parking garage at our airport. And so he always parks on the second floor. So he comes back that evening, and he's got the little clicker, and he's walking all around the second floor, and he cannot find his car. He walks the entire, you know, piece of that second floor, click, click, click. Finally, he thinks he hears the car up above him. He thinks he hears, so he goes up to the third floor, walks the entire third floor, can't find his car. A little panic begins to set in. Did the car get stolen? But now he thinks he hears it below him again. So he goes back to the second floor, walks the entire second floor. You know how nice and cool it is in those parking garages, right? He's just sweating profusely. He goes back up now to the fourth floor trying to find his car. Finally has to call security, help him walk around, and he parked his car on the first floor. After 35 minutes, he found it. Anybody else in the room ever done something like that? Yeah. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have run out of gas before? You've run out. Raise your hands high. Come on, we've already had communion. Confess your sins. Has anybody in the room not run out of gas before? Oh, come on. Raise them again. Are 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 you on the level? You've never run out of gas. All right. That's a lot of people. How about oil? Have you ever, the light's going off. It's not like you can miss that oil light, and you let the car run completely out of oil. Anybody in the room done that? That that went over well, didn't it, on your engine? How about driving on the highway, you're in a hurry, and you missed your exit? That's the worst, isn't it? I did that to a funeral one time, and oh my gosh, I was not very holy by the time I got to, to the funeral. I wasn't. I want to talk about distractions this morning. It's real easy to get distracted. It's real easy to get distracted in that which is important, that which is valuable. But what's so impressive about Jesus of Nazareth is that even though Jesus had all these reasons to get distracted, I mean, he had internal reasons. The disciples didn't seem to be getting it. The disciples were pulling and struggling. There were lots of internal distractions. There were even a little wider circle with his mom and his brothers. His mom and his brothers early on did not follow him, did not understand him. There was always a Pharisee or a scribe or a chief priest or a teacher of the law who was trying to nail Jesus. And yet in all of this, we never find Jesus getting rattled or more importantly, 
getting distracted. How did Jesus maintain this incredible focus? And so when Jesus tells you and me to seek first the kingdom of God, how how do we do that without getting distracted? When, When Jesus tells us to love, you know, our neighbors, ourselves, and to love God with all our heart, soul, mind. How, how in the world do we do that 24-7? And he says, you know, if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled, but if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. How, how do we stay humble? Because you're successful, and you've gotten some things accomplished, and you're here today because you were able to be here today, so you have something going on. You've got something on the ball. How do we fulfill the things that God has told us to do? And how do we be the kind of people that God has called us to be? Well, if you notice what Jesus was always doing, he was always saying what the Father told him to say. And he was always doing what the Father told him to do. Jesus wasn't saying things that he shouldn't, and he wasn't doing things that he wasn't, shouldn't be doing. He was always focused. And then we kind of look at some of the how, and we see, wow, he got away from the crowds and went off to a solitary place, and he spent time praying. Is there any white space in your schedule every day? He would spend sometimes all night in prayer. When's the last time you spent an hour or two at night before you went to bed and, and, and spent some time, time praying? Every time he was challenged by someone, he would always quote scripture. How did Jesus know the scripture so well? How did he always be able to quote the right verse to the right person or to Lucifer at the right? How, how did he do that? He could quote the Psalms and he could quote Deuteronomy more than any other book. How did Jesus do that? His fuel was his passionate relationship with his heavenly father. He always got refueled by his walk and the presence and the power of God. Can you imagine being a marathon runner and all you ate were our delicious apple fritters out there at the (laughs) cafe? I mean, you would have no fuel. You would not have any strength. You'd maybe run four or five miles and that'd be about it. Jesus always got fueled up and he never got distracted. Are, Are you distracted this morning? What would be the major distractions, who would be the distractions in your life? If you've got the Harborside downloaded on your phone, we've got an app. If you, if you don't have it on there, you can download it in like 20 seconds. Turn to your app. Let's open up our apps, and we've got all the scripture verses and all the fill-in-the-blanks right there in the uh, app for you. So we're going to start with Luke. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it, it gives us a clue on how Jesus kept his focus. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, I mean, that's a whole sermon right there. That's pretty cool. He knows it's time. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Another translation says, he set his face. I like that translation even better. He set his face. He was resolute. He knew what was coming. He knew the cross was coming. He knew death was coming. He knew a resurrection was coming, but he resolutely now set his face to go toward Jerusalem. And as he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. I like that verse too. I don't think I've ever noticed that before. He sends some messengers, not the disciples. You know, they're not going to be able to Google, you know, hey, you know, can we kayak a hotel, you know. So that he sends people on ahead who get things ready to be able to, to, to house them. 
And was there a whole caravan of people traveling with Jesus besides his disciples? Well, I don't know. But there were messengers who went on ahead. And they're going to get things ready for him. So they're going to go and find a hotel. They're going to find a restaurant. They're going to find the best routes. And so you would go to Samaria because Samaria is like right in the middle of everything. Now, the problem with Samaria was the Samaritans didn't like Jewish people, and Jewish people didn't like Samaritans because it was a racial issue. Let's just bottom line it. It was race at the highest level. And it was a a blood issue and a race issue, and they didn't get along, and they didn't really like each other. But the Samaritans loved their money, and the Samaritans took their money except when you were headed toward Jerusalem for one of the three major festivals because they didn't qualify. They were not able to go to the festivals. And so look what happens next. But the people there did not welcome Jesus. The people there in Samaria did not welcome the messengers. They told the messengers, there's no room in the inn. This is the second time this has happened to Jesus, right? There's no room in the inn. And the Samaritans were not going to house them. They, weren't, they didn't care how much money they would pay. They're not going to do it because we can't go to Jerusalem. You can. You can go to the Passover. We can't. And therefore, we're full. Maybe they were half full. But we're full. We're not taking you, we're not taking you in. And what's so interesting about this is Jesus refuses to get distracted. Now, how many of you would have reacted in a different way than maybe you could have or should have? You're on your way to Jerusalem, but now you're ticked. I'm not good enough. My money doesn't work. My money's green too. How, come, how many of us would start those fights in our minds and arguments? How many of us would file a lawsuit, file a complaint? How many of us? And here's the point this morning. You will never get to your Jerusalem if you stay and you fight your Samaria. Now, you've got a Jerusalem, and you've got a lot of Samarias and Samaritans all around you, and those are your distractions. But you've got to know your Jerusalem. You've got to understand your Jerusalem. Why are you here? Why do you exist? There's a lot of Samaritans that are going to distract you. Something's got your name on it. Now, not everything has your name on it. Not everything has your name on it. Not every cause do you have to fix. Not every need do you have to send money to. Not every person who needs help does God have your name as part of the solution. But you've got your name on something. What's your name on? Your name's not on everything, everybody, every issue, every problem, every concern. But you've got your name on something. I think churches get in trouble with this. I counsel pastors of other churches. Basically, what's your Jerusalem? What do you do better than anybody else? What has God called you to do? You can't do everything as a church. You can't be everything to all people. But you've got to be something to somebody. We've decided to own marriage. The wedding chapel, it's the carrot. The whole reason we've got the wedding chapel, it's drop-dead gorgeous. Every bride that goes in there goes, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it's so beautiful. It's from the seven equipping skills that we want to do. We're equipping, equipping, equipping. We want to change the trajectory of marriage in the state of Florida, and that's what we're doing. We, We own that. Our name is on marriage. Our name is on equipping. We are equipping people and setting them up for success. We own that. We own original music. We're going to own that. We're going to help these other worship pastors and all these other churches. We own that. But we don't own everything. 
You don't own everything. Your name is not on everything. And if you let your Samarias distract you. Now here's a Samaria. You're on your way to something, and something comes in and happens, and now your energy is all discombobulated, and you've got those mental things going on, and you're fighting a mental picture, and you're having a verbal battle going on inside of your brain. Am I the only one that does this? Are you with me on this? And now you're not really equipped for your Jerusalem because your Samaria is sapping your strength. What is your Jerusalem? And what are your Samarias? Now, this is the troubling part about preaching. It's like during the week, you got to just fall down on your knees and repent all the time when you're doing this. Because I realize I have had so many Samarias. It's embarrassing to admit, but the Samarias have kept me from the Jerusalems that are far bigger, far greater. Far... Your, your Jerusalem might be a bomb. Your Jerusalem might be being a dad. Your Jerusalem might be an uncle to a kid that, you know, in the family that needs to be adopted. Your Jerusalem might be running a company. Your Jerusalem might be a great nurse. Your Jerusalem could be a hundred. Whatever it is, your Samarias will distract you. What's got your name on it? And whatever has your name on it, I guarantee you today, tomorrow, there'll be five Samarias coming right at you. And I have succumbed to that. I'm not going to do that anymore as much as I have in the past. I'm going to get above that. Yes, that's a problem, but my name's not on it. Yes, that's a concern, but my name's not on it. Yes, that's trying to distract me, but my name's not on that. My name's on this. And I'm going to keep my focus, and I'm going to keep dialed in, and I'm going to do exactly what the Heavenly Father has called me to do. You've got greatness in front of you. And the Heavenly Father is calling you to greatness. And your Samarias, they just distract the heck out of you. So here's another distraction for Jesus. I think this is a little bit funny. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they're ticked. James and John are mad at the Samaritans. They won't house us. Our money's not good enough. Lord, do you want us just to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? I love that. Go, James and John, baby. you got to love that. That's me. Is that you? Probably not. You're far holier than I am, I'm sure. Lord, let's just kill them. Let's just take them out. And, God, and Jesus is going, oh, man, they don't have it yet. And time's running out. We're on the final lap. The relay's about over. And, and so I just want to back up, and we'll come back to this verse. This is kind of the context. An argument started, same context, Luke 9, six or seven verses earlier. Which one of us is going to be the greatest? Now, in that context, you're going to think, man, are they self-centered. Let's look at this differently. They just come back from being sent out as 70 disciples two by two. They were just given authority to cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, help the lame walk. What kind of meetings did they experience? One of the disciples would come back at the campfire and say, boy, I'm telling you what, this guy couldn't walk, and we laid hands on him. He could walk. Another disciple was going, that's nothing. This guy had, you know, four demons inside of him. We laid hands on him, and he's frothing at the mouth, and he got healed. Somebody else going, that's nothing. This guy was blind from birth, and we healed him. What kind of meetings did these guys experience? 
They had just seen the power of God, and so they all kind of get a little bit cocky now. And you know what happens when you experience a little bit of success? Something gets dialed up in you that's never been dialed up before. Well, I, got, I, I passed the degree, I, I got the master's, I got the PhD, I, I got the new job, I got the promotion, I got the success. Every time there is success in your life, something gets dialed up in you that has never been dialed up before. And it's a Samaria. It's a Samaria. One of my mentors, Bob Russell, used to say, for every hundred people who could handle a tragedy, only about two people out of a hundred could handle great success. There's Samarias. Let's just call down fire from heaven. Let's just kill them all. Who's the greatest? Which one of us is the greatest? So Jesus is going, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? So he finds a kid, has the kid stand beside him. Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. That's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, no matter how good and great and strong and smart and educated, your Jerusalem is, you're a servant. Because you recognize that you are a child of the king. And you have just a little bit of time and a little bit of money to make a difference while these few short years on this earth. But you got to love this. They still don't get it. Well, Jesus, while you're giving us the whole kid humble thing, let, let, let us tell you what else happened. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Don't stop him. Whoever's not against you is for you. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call, there's our verse again, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? I actually like that verse. I think that's cool. I love their courage. James and John actually believed they could call down fire from heaven and just wipe them out. That's faith. Misguided, but that's faith. Oh, that's awesome. That's just awesome. Jesus just turned. He's just shaking his head like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding? So here's what Jesus does. He doesn't stay and fight his Samaria. He could have fought Samaria. He could have called down heaven. He could have rebuked them. He could have won. Here's what he does. He just goes to another village. I'm not going to get distracted. How many times has your Samaria totally discombobulated your day? You've gotten all worked up, foaming at the mouth. I I can preach on this because I've done this far more times than I care to admit. Far more times than I am going to admit to you. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. This is on distractions. Jesus is going, you're distracted. Foxes have dens, birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has got no place to lay his head. In other words, are you for real? You really think you're, you're all in? Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another guy said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And No, said Jesus, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I I just just love this. Because I think about my Jerusalem. I think about your Jerusalem. It could be family. It could be business. It could be medicine. It could be ministry. There's lots and lots of Jerusalems. You've got a Jerusalem. But you've also got lots and lots of Samarias. If we would go back and if we had a time to really look at the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 
is about 140 years after the fall of Jerusalem. Babylon, the Babylonians came in, wiped them all out, destroyed the big temple, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the walls. And so here comes Nehemiah about 140 years after this destruction. And Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, and Ezra, the priest, kind of helped rebuild some of the spiritual issues. And now Nehemiah has come to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And the reason the walls were so critical is because of thieves and bandits. And so it left the people, the inhabitants inside of Jerusalem, just sitting ducks for pirates. And so Nehemiah has come to rebuild this wall. But the enemies don't want the wall to be rebuilt. We want to come and steal sheep. We want to come and get cattle. We want to come and rob and rape and pillage. So they don't want the wall built around Jerusalem. So he's got two big dog enemies named Sanballat and Tobiah. And Sanballat and Tobiah keep offering to go meet with him. Let's go have coffee. Nehemiah, let's you know, stop building a wall. Let's go negotiate. Let's, let's delay. Let's delay. Let's delay. We haven't seen anything like that on TV lately. So let's just continue to make this thing, stretch this thing out. Who said that? Where, where did that come from? And just delay. And, and so, so and here's what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah says, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. I'm not meeting with my enemies. I'm not even going to go to coffee with my enemies. Nehemiah says, I am doing a great work and I, I refuse to come down off this wall. And in 52 days, they rebuilt this incredible project, building construction project, and the walls were rebuilt. You're doing a great work as a mom. Why would you get distracted from being a mom? You're doing a great work as a dad. Why would you get distracted? You're doing a great work. You're providing for your family. You're getting an education. You're going to school. Why would you get distracted? You have a mission. You have a ministry that God has called you to. What in the world could ever distract you? I am doing a great work, he said. And I will not come down. I don't know every one of you in this room. I like every one of you in this room. I really do. But I know you've got a Jerusalem. And I know you've got a great work. And I know that you're here today looking and searching and seeking and trying to figure out what the great work is that God has called me to. That's why you're in the room today. You're here today. You're seeking. You're exploring. Or you're a soldier. And what does God have in store? So how do you live a life that leaves a lasting impression? I don't think you have to know everything, but I do think you have to know a few things. Here's one. I think you have to know this. The people who make a difference are not the people who have been mastered, who have mastered many things, but who've been mastered by a few great things. Jesus mastered prayer. He mastered scripture. He mastered community. He mastered forgiveness. He mastered giving. He mastered loving. Those are the qualities and the the actions that you and I, if we want to ever reach greatness, we must be mastered by those basic disciplines of life. You just have to know a few things. I I don't think it takes great IQ. I don't think you have to be rich and come from royal bloodlines to be great. What do you need to know? What do you need to understand? You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire, set on fire by them. 
Are you on fire for Christ? Nothing else will last. And why would you be on fire for anything else but Christ? He's undefeated. He's batting a thousand so far. Every miracle, every context, every city, every community, everywhere Jesus went, he changed everything. I'm going with the guy who got up and got out of the grave. That's who I'm going with. His name is Jesus. And we were on fire for that. And when we get distracted, I'm not saying you should go to work and you should go to school and you should pay your bills and you should work hard and you can play hard. I'm not saying all that. All that's fine. But the fuel, where it starts from, is always the gospel of Jesus Christ. So these two ladies were 79 and 80 when they finished their medical practices. One was a widow, one was single. Ruby and Laura. Ruby and Laura were now 20 years in Cameroon, Africa. It's kind of central Africa. And at 60 and 59, they left the States, retired from their practices, and they went there and served for 20 years. And they did medical missions, they fed, they clothed, and more importantly, they they were teaching the scriptures, every village, every city, every community, everyone into. They're always teaching, teaching, teaching the scriptures. And after 20 years, they both got killed. The brakes on the old station wagon gave way, and they careened just right off the mountain, and they both died instantly. An author in the States got a hold of that, and the title of his article was Tragedy. Tragedy that these women did what they did, lost their lives the way that they did, and spent the last 20 years of their lives doing the things that they did. John Piper, a rather vocal preacher, saw that article and he said, Are you kidding me? Tragedy. And he wrote a reaction to that called Triumph. He said, When most of their colleagues, you know, retired 20 years ago and they're now in some resort eating dinner every afternoon at 4 30. This ladies, these ladies are out there, village to village, community to community, sharing Christ, giving it their all. He said, tragedy? Are you kidding? He said, that's a triumph. And here's what he wrote. He said this. He says, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision, spent in unheralded service to the perishing for the glory of Jesus Christ two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired. No, this is not tragedy, he said. This is glory. Then he says, let me tell you what tragedy is. And he quotes a Reader's Digest article about success. He says, let me tell you what tragedy is. And he quotes the Reader's Digest on the article called The American Dream. He said, the American Dream had a story of Bob and Penny. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when Bob was 59 and Penny was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. He said, people are, are spending billions of dollars trying to convince you on what the American dream is. He said, with all my heart, don't buy that dream. The American dream... Nice house, nice car, nice job, nice family, nice retirement. Collecting shells as the last chapter as you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord. Here's my seashell collection. 
and I got a really nice golf swing. And Lord, don't forget my boat. It's a 30-footer. Now, maybe he's being a little sarcastic. Maybe he's on point. Maybe he's on point. It was Jesus who said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And he forfeits his soul. And he forfeits his soul. Jesus never got distracted as he set his face to go toward Jerusalem. He never got distracted by Judas. He never got distracted by the soldiers who came to arrest him. He never got distracted even though he had to put Malchus's ear back on after Simon Peter whacked it off with a sword. He never got distracted as he went through an illegal trial all that Thursday night. He never got distracted being in front of Caiaphas. He never got distracted in front of Annas. He never got distracted in front of King Herod. He never got political, even with Pontius Pilate. Jesus never lost his focus because his focus was always to bring glory to God. And he went to the cross to die for you and for me. And he gave his life so that now we could live freely and abundantly. And so the power of the Holy Spirit would come to live inside of us. So here's what he says in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life If you are not a Christian, I don't know why you wouldn't be. Jesus is crazy about you. Jesus wants to forgive you. He wants to embrace you. He wants to love you. He wants to take you into his fold, into his family. Anybody in the room that is like contemplating this, just remember, Jesus is undefeated. Jesus bats a thousand. Jesus is the, the king of kings. He's the greatest hero. He's the greatest person who ever lived is the only king who ever gave up his throne so that you could now be in his kingdom. That's the only king who's ever done that. Second of all, this morning, I would get baptized. Baptism's a big deal. It's your touchstone. It's your flag in the ground. It's that statement that you make publicly in front of all these people. I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a public profession of your faith. And, and thirdly, Stay focused. Get rid of the Samarias. Smell them coming. Nope, not going there. Not stepping in that. Nope, nope, I see that. Get, get, get above. Get, get on top of your Samarias. Stay focused. What's your Jerusalem? What's he called you to do? What's he called you to be? What are the great things that he has in store for you? Let's stand. I want our prayer partners to come down front. Give your life to Christ. Go sign up at the Connect desk to be baptized this next Sunday afternoon. And all week long, stick on to your Jerusalem. What's got my name on it? 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 Jesus, we love you. We honor you today. You're the King of Kings. Dismiss us now to be soldiers and servants for you.